0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Buyers Market Podcast. I'm joined by a special guest today, Hugh Seaton. Hugh uh, is uh, another different guest than we've had previously. He has a lot of cool experience. He's a little bit newer to construction, in air quotes, uh, because he has uh, uh, more experience in a different field and is bringing that experience to the to the construction space. Um, he has worked for brands like AOL, Sony. He's been an adjunct professor, professor at NYU in Shanghai and also at Sacred Heart University. He's the GM at uh, Symmetry, and he's also the host of Constructed Futures podcast, which I strongly recommend everyone check out. If you like my podcast, you'll like this one, maybe even better. I've listened to a lot of cool episodes. And he's also the first author we've had on the podcast. He is the author of The Construction Technology Handbook, which, once again, available on Amazon. Encourage you to check it out. Hugh, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so I became aware of Hugh on uh, through LinkedIn, uh, through actually consuming his podcast. He had a couple of interesting guests that I had been connected with previously and had heard their stories. And so when I saw the first clip, I, I checked out more of the episodes and was really interested in what Hugh's doing, doing, um, not only from the book he's published, from his podcast, but uh, when we were able to connect just his view on technology and how much it can help the AEC space. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Hugh here in a second to hear his story. Um, but just to frame everyone's thinking here, we're going to hear a little bit about Hugh's, um, Hugh's experience outside of the construction field, how he navigated into the construction space, and then him and I are going to jam a little bit on how architectural engineering and construction firms can better utilize technology and also digitally engage with their customers. So um, with that, Hugh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career and how you got started and how you ended up in construction?
1: It's funny, I started um, my career in southern Taiwan working at a steel factory making welding wire, because why wouldn't I? Um, I was, you know, long story, I was interested in Asia when I was growing up, and I had the opportunity to go out there and landed this random job, and I learned Mandarin while I was there. And um, really interesting introduction to engineering, and in that case, it was technology transfer. I stayed there for about two years and then went to Hong Kong where I got a job at an ad agency. And I stayed in advertising one way or the other for about the next 15 years. Um, I worked in China somewhat, in in the U.S. a lot, worked for Sony. Actually, I was the marketing manager for Walkman when the iPod came out, which is as humbling an experience as you can have. Um, I also worked at AOL when everybody stopped using dial-ups. I'm kind of dating myself a little. This is the early noughts. Um, You know, I I went back to China um, in uh, 2007 and worked at BBDO running their Pepsi Pepsi business. Um, I was there for about five years total. I left Pepsi, ran some other stuff, started my own company. And one of the things that I was doing around 2010, 2009, 2010, was working with an American guy named Paul Doherty, who some of your listeners may have come across, who was kind of was doing a number of things, but but the thing I he and I worked on together was BIM services that were being conducted in India that were being sold into China. I mean, it was more going on than that, but that's a good idea. So that really got me excited, not just about BIM, but they were selling a vision of 4D BIM and 5D BIM, the essentially digital twins. They didn't call it that at the time, um, and I got really excited. Now, meanwhile, Shanghai is being built all around me. I remember seeing one of the one of the towers. Built literally, I, could, I was on the 45th floor and I could see it. So construction was, you were surrounded by it if you chose to pay attention to it. So that was the beginning. And then I come back um, in 2012 and I start the AEC hackathon with Paul and a, and a really good friend named Damon Hernandez. They really started it. I serve pizza. But that got me excited about, and, and meanwhile, let me back up. As Sony and AOL would imply, all of that marketing and advertising experience was in technology with the exception of Pepsi. And I quickly got back into technology right after it. So technology has always been something I'm excited about. How to get people to adopt is actually my master's thesis was on how to get people to adopt technology. Um, It's amazing how much BS is out there. That's why I wrote a whole thing on it. Um, So as I came back, I was more and more involved with technology hackathons being one of those things. In 2015, I started a company that was focused on e-learning and had a an, a an AEC component to it. We built some VR, we, built, we didn't really do any AR. We built some VR, we did um, AI voice, which was actually kind of a cool product. Um, it did well, we attracted some funding. I wound up selling it. We didn't attract as much funding as I wanted, so I sold it to a company called The Glimpse Group, um, which is a VR and AR company um, with a little bit of kind of AI on the side. <laughs> As in, we use they use a couple of things. They use a little bit of voice and a little bit of this. Um, I left Glimpse last year to go to the Construction Specifications Institute, where I'm running their crosswalk product. I did that for a couple of reasons. One is Glimpse is a great company, but it had run its course personally. But the opportunity to work at CSI, which is really the center of the construction industry, I mean, there's a lot of centers of the construction industry, but the standards and other things that, that CSI puts out, really, I liked where that put me in terms of, of visibility and all that. Part of my launching products into construction was this idea that if I'm going to write a business plan, it's like a third of the way to writing a book. So I happened to run into somebody who, I, who worked at, at Wiley. One thing led to another. So I published that book that you mentioned earlier, the Construction Technology Handbook. While that was kind of um, basically the way that process works is you do a bunch of work and then you hand it over to them and then it's checking and there's like six months of not very hard work. It's excruciating how long it takes, but they're a big machine and they publish a lot of stuff. So I was like, you know what I ought to do? I should do me a podcast. (laughs) So we launched the (laughs) podcast. Then I was like, podcast is nice, but you know what? I'm tired of hearing about McKinsey data and i'm tired of hearing about this and about that and if i see another another startup say they're part of a 1.3 trillion dollar industry i'm going to have a problem with that so i started another thing called the construction technology quarterly which is the name would imply once a quarter i take data and i just present it it's a it's a webinar it's really it's free of course um and i started with breaking down what that 1.3 trillion is and you know one of the things we'll talk about later is marketing often to understand how much effort you're going to put into something, you want to understand how big the market is and how rich it is. And it bothered me that that the technology side seemed to have no idea of of what segments they were selling into and what what was in that massive number. So anyway, between all of those, um, I'm still doing the podcast. We re- recorded something this morning, um, and you know, just loving this is an industry that is in a really interesting place. No one disputes that it it is in the middle of digital transformation but you're building things that can fall down and hurt people you've got a, you've got you know multiple generations on a job site and a bunch of other things that slow things down which i think we'll get into later um, so it's a really exciting time to be here one last point though is i've seen a couple of industries go through digital transformation um, electronics being one um, where sony just did not understand digital they understood electronics obviously and they understood how to make things but they really lost out to Apple and Samsung because both of those companies understood digital. Um, this, the next one after that, and I swear it's not my fault, but was advertising, which got absolutely gutted because people didn't understand, people in the industry didn't understand what was coming. And when everything went truly digital with, with Google and then later Facebook, um, it absolutely changed the way the industry works. And people just didn't, they didn't catch up. You know, people that were very analog, people that were very face-to-face and and intuitive, um, they really didn't, too many of them weren't able to make that leap. And it was unfortunate because a lot of value was destroyed and a lot of careers were really kind of shunted off to the side. There's a zillion marketing consultants out there who have nice resumes from 15 years ago or 10 years ago because there was just this moment in around 07, 05, something like that, where the industry just shifted. Um, and I think... That's way more dramatic than what will happen in construction. But I think it's instructive to look at it, is that companies get destroyed when they don't catch up, when they don't understand that the basis of operating and the basis of competing has changed. I think that's where that's it's a slower moving bus because of 18 months, 22 year projects and various other things. But construction is doing the same thing and you're going to see winners and losers here just like you have in all these other industries. Which brings us to today.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that I mean that's that's a very uh, that's a very compelling story, and um, you know I want to I want to understand a little bit more about your experience and just kind of what you're seeing today that mirrors what you've already been through. Until we get into more some of this customer acquisition stuff, because the electronics is a is a good example. And you say Sony, and I think most people would say, well, you know, yeah, they obviously didn't they didn't pivot very well, but they're still around. And I that's that's been my experience in business is people think of things very in a very binary way. Mm-hmm. When yeah, there are there Sony is still around, but is Sony the same company that it was 15, 20 years ago? I don't think many people would argue that it is. Um, and so that's where I see people in the construction space struggling to understand this concept of digital transformation and change. Because you have people like us that are saying, hey, people are changing. You can talk to younger folks in the space and it's obvious that their buying behaviors have changed. But at the C-suite level, when the median age is 50 plus, they're saying we're getting work. Things haven't changed. Um, What what kind of did you experience? Did you see similar things happening in the electronic space? And what were some of the what were some of the big changes that people had a tough time wrapping their head around? And why do you think that was?
1: Yeah, I think to give you a really easy and clear example of Walkman. There's a meeting I was in when we were at a place where the 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 kind of product guys and the the P&L team were um, extending every quarter how many quarters they represented their market share so they could they could hide the fact that they were getting killed by iPad iPod, excuse me. So like we were losing this quarter but if we looked at four quarters we're still doing great. You see, because we started from a position of strength. So we're in this meeting, and and some of the, the, the product designers are arguing that we could have done all, there's nothing special about the iPod. They utterly missed what, what had happened. They thought of it as a technical achievement, which it really wasn't. The only thing that was technically even remotely interesting was a smaller um, disk drive, which they got from Toshiba, I think it was. So like Apple didn't do the technical innovation that made the iPod a success. And at this point, the you know, a lot of the stuff with apps, none of that was around yet. Um, even even the um, the ability to download songs was still kind of limited. Steve Jobs hadn't done all of his magic at this point. Um, what they missed was. The same day I had that meeting, I'm walking up, I think it's Ninth Avenue in Manhattan, and I'm right next to me is this young, um, like 22, 23 year old art director, and she is as smart as she needs to be, but she genuinely doesn't care about electronics. Right? I mean, she's, it's her job to go take, she was, was a photo shoot. So she, you know, she did what she does, but it, it was, she's, what we're walking along and she kind of innocently is talking to me, her Sony client about how great her iPod was. And it was magical. I just shut up and listened because it was one of those moments when you're like, oh my God, she was describing opening and, and buy and getting this product as if it were a box of chocolates, as if it were a gift. Because it was nicely wrapped. It was easy to understand. There were like four buttons on the whole thing. In contrast, the equivalent product that we had had like 40 buttons on it. It was put together in what they call a clamshell, which you need tools to open without hurting yourself. So, and it was all a jumble. It was, it's like we didn't care about our own product. That was the state of the art. But what Apple had done was 100% marketing and design. Obviously, there were some technical pieces, and someone who's I'm sure, from the iPod team is, would be gritting their teeth for me to imply there wasn't something there. But what they really did was change from hardcore engineering to engineering for users, engineering for people to actually experience it. And they changed packaging. They changed product design. They changed a bunch of different things. So in all of this, the equivalent to me is un- not understanding what the basis of of competition and, and the basis of choice is. And I think, look, it's a huge industry. Unlike Sony, where there were like four or five electronics companies that, that were big enough to matter, you know, there's 400 that are over one and a half billion or whatever the size is at the, the bottom of the ENR 400. So it's a way more fragmented market. So it's, we got to be careful about what lessons to draw from that. Advertising is probably a little closer. And again, in advertising, people were saying the right things at the conferences. It was all about digital and it was about data. And I mean, honestly, a lot of it would sound the same. What they didn't do was hire differently. They didn't brief senior management differently. They didn't make sure that the intuition that senior managers and and executives had built up over years was given a place to translate into the new reality because it's still about people and it's still about all the things that make you an executive are still relevant. However the basis of 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 operating is shifting and it's becoming more data driven it's becoming a great example in in the case of 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 who to go after i know at least three companies who will talk about how data has made them chase the better better targets and win more so they go from winning two or three or whatever you know two or three out of 10 20 to 30% to winning like 80% because they're targeting better based on data and the projects that they go after are profitable instead of being the one, the company, the developer we've been working with for 50 years, who often isn't very profitable. I mean, it depends on the company and the situation, but just something as simple as that, how much can that lift your margins? And, you know, electronics, it's as it, flashy as it was, Sony's margins in the U.S. were like one, one to two percent. If that sounds familiar, it, it is. So we didn't have money to spend on advertising. We didn't, you know, we, we, we did advertising, it was my job, but we didn't have $100 million like AOL where we had stupid money. Um, so, So I think the problem is you can say the right things in meetings and speeches and all that, but if your actions aren't about who's doing what, you know what I mean? Like look, strategy means nothing without the people to execute it. And the people to execute it means hiring new people. It means, God forbid, a consultant here or there um outside voices and construction companies are they trust themselves to a, to a, i think too high a degree and don't listen outside of their walls enough and i think that's going to wind up being a problem and you're seeing some that aren't like that and i think those those that are able to take in ideas frameworks and thinking from the outside are going to wind up having better margins being able to invest in the future um, and one of the ways to invest in the future where margins matter is try going to a bank with low margins and, and kind of funny payment schedules and getting them to give you $50 million to invest in a factory. You can't. I mean, and, and, and like Skender had this problem. Skender built something gorgeous in, I've seen the, I've been there, but um, in, uh, in Chicago and the bank pulled the loan. I'm sure there was a lot going on, but. They were a weird credit risk and it was hard for them to get the credit to begin with. So this matters if you want to have a future when off-site and industrial construction are a part of your supply chain. You're either going to have to buy it all from someone else or you're going to have to think about ways to, to increase margin or and or change how you look to a bank. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on but that's one of them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's re- that's really good and I, there's um. I think there are a lot of lessons there. And the interesting part when you were giving the Sony example and you know the distri- the distribution of AEC, it is distributed from a revenue standpoint. But if you look at the top 15 in the NR, they have disproportionately a large, a large market share. And so that's that's one of the things I'm interested in as time goes on, as some of the bigger players in this space maybe are more reluctant to change for whatever reason. Big companies are relying on the previous success and they're less likely to change. How big of a door does that open up for the smaller people that are more nimble and are more willing to try these things? And what does that look like over five, ten years? How much margin erosion? How much market cap erosion? All these things that you've already seen play out in the electronic space. How quickly is it before that starts to affect the AEC space? And I, uh, unfortunately for a lot of people, I think they're, uh, they're not going to find out until it's too late. When you look at the current environment, there's a big infrastructure bill coming. There's a lot of need for things in the built world. And so you can see the net, over the next five to 10 years where it's kind of like, no, we're good. We're good. But then when the tide goes out and all of a sudden you have to really start competing for these projects again, I think that's when you're really going to start to see this like, oh, this company was nimble. This company engages with customers different. This This company is able to attract customers in a different way, in a more efficient way. And so what's ultimately is going to allow them to reduce their cost, to your point, invest in more technologies and surpass the larger companies that have a large market share.
1: Um, Well, well, Matt, if I may, I think that that, you know, that may come where there isn't there's is there's more there is not enough demand for the supply um I don't think we're there right now and I don't think we'll be there for a little while. I think that the 2 billion or so or sorry 200 billion or so a year that this infrastructure bill will pump into something. It's they're not building multifamily high rises, but it's it's going it doesn't matter. It's it's into the industry. Mm-hmm. I think that that where the competition is already really fierce and is going to get fiercer for for a couple of reasons is actually the talent to get it done. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so so one easy example of that is Let's say you're a company and you've got a thousand superintendents or 500, whatever the number is. Most of them have no idea what those superintendents have done at any quantitative scale. They, they, you know, Fred knows what Jim's done because they worked together and they had beer or whatever. But but HR or anything central can't map out how many supers they've had that have done water, you know, water treatment or have dealt with, you know, chrome. I mean, I'm making it up, but but there's a lot of different things that allow you to be to go win something but then execute it in a in a you know a lower risk way and i think that that's where you're going to see um management of the people you do have and attraction of new people because demographically we're never going to have enough people like like we're not having enough kids It's 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 not it's not a thing where if we go to the the high schools and the trade schools and if only those Darn guidance counselors didn't keep pushing people away. That's all going to matter, and it's all worth doing, and it's we have to do that. But we are hundreds of thousands of people short and have been since 2008. There was no moment when we weren't. I looked at these numbers going back pretty far. We're something like 400,000 short now. Now, a lot of that's in the trades. But my point in all this is I think the competition already is executing without undue risk, because you hear stories about people that bring in folks that are not qualified because they need a body. And what risk does that does that create, right? And that risk is going to show up in safety numbers, and the safety numbers are going to mean they're going to have cost problems, and they're going to have attraction problems. So I think what where, where, where it matters in the short run is, as I say, attracting people, retaining people, and making them feel like, I want to work here. Um, and especially when it comes to millennials and really anyone after Gen X, um, who are a little used to kind of... You know, getting knocked on the head and being okay with it, um, but I I think that that's going to be a huge area where all this matters.
0: Yeah, that that's a that's a that's a very astute point. Um, I like the talent to get it done that quote because it's it's so true. And um, to your point about the labor attraction, it's definitely going to happen in the skilled trades. But you know, one of the things I I talk to a lot of people about especially when we're talking about marketing talent is, you're not competing with every other construction company, you're competing with every other company that needs a marketer. And so you're not not able to just say, hey, we're the big AEC company and you should come work for us because that doesn't mean as much to marketers. And more and more electrical engineers They're needed across lots of type of disciplines as well, Mm -hmm. as much as they're needed in the AEC space or power generation space. And so now you're not just competing against your peers. You're competing against other industries and why people should come to that industry as well. Mm -hmm. So very, very good point. Um, What are you seeing? What are you seeing right now is the big uh, the, the big. Big technology adoptions companies are looking at or are, are currently making that you believe is going to make an impact uh, on construction projects.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there are steps that every company goes through and every industry goes through while they're transforming from a paper based analog way of doing things to a digital way. The first one, uh, there's an analogy that that comes from a professor in, in Stanford. I'm blanking on his name. Um, first thing you do is is pave the cow paths, and the, that's an analogy for the idea that you you digitize processes as they exist now and that's what the procores of the world we've just had a decade long wave of that really more like 5 years but we've had a wave of that and i think we're pretty close to done you know procore penetration is is great it's it's surrounded by a number of other options that that I mean most companies above a certain size have a pretty good digital workflow solution obviously there's a lot of point solutions that fill in gaps and all that but the next thing now is to say, great, now, and we're, you know, what used to be pieces of paper stuck in a drawer somewhere in a folder are now, is now data in our system. What do we do with all of this? So, what you're starting to see now is more and more of an, understa- of an understanding that we have this asset. And yes, our workflows are better and we've, we've gotten a little bit more productivity, nowhere near what was promised because it's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, next thing is how do we change how we do things by learning via data? one of the other one of the things that you hear a lot in construction is people can cons- people lamenting the fact that they can't they don't have the time especially in the trades to sit down and think about their process and discuss it so they don't have postmortems like you might somewhere else or in, you know developers will talk about retrospectives where you sit down and think about how you just executed and try to improve no one has time for that so what data allows you to do is much more quickly graph what was there so it's not a discussion it's not a recollection it's an it's an a consumption of graphing and, and other analyses that allow system, companies to say our process could be better if we did. Let's do less of that. Let's do more of that. So on and so forth. So what is happening now, and I think this is going to be another five to 10 years, is incredible volumes of data and the ability to do things with them. And the ability to do things with them is going to take longer than getting the data. There's already a ton. You know, you've got um, AI systems that 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 you can apply to most cameras, whether it's video or, or still, that have machine vision that's insane. And it can do all sorts of cool stuff, like how, how much is complete, um, and all, you know, so on and so forth. And I think that volume of data is going to become increasingly um, consumed, analyzed, and they're gonna ask for more. And we're past the point where it's a question of whether that'll happen. You know, we, we grumble about how the construction industry is slow to adopt. Uh, compared to what? Cuz I'll tell you there's a lot of companies that are putting a lot of money and a lot of a lot of bodies at this problem. Some more than others, but there's most companies are doing a lot and they're starting to really see the see some of the fruits, which is how it works. Is you see a, a pilot that's like, "Wow, that was great." And then 50 pilots that don't, but you're like, "Great, but that one worked. Let's do more of that and, and not so many of the others." The other point I would I would make is you hear people in construction say, we need to learn how to fail fast. They have. Construction companies now in their innovation teams, they have the ability to fail quickly. So they'll do a pilot that's hived off or, I mean, they don't all do this, but enough of them do that the point I think is made is the ability to fail now is let's do a pilot and maybe it's our own project. Maybe it's a piece of a project. Maybe we're, you know, who knows? There's a bunch of different ways depending on the technology. So I think that, that um, you're seeing more and more that that adoption is is it it's getting there and 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 data is going to be the center of what i think you see a lot of next
0: so what technologies are 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 firms looking at around data is it is it just general data capture right now and data integrity or are they past that and they're moving on to ways to utilize the data
1: so now we get into the fun part until now with the exception of a couple of people to manage your procore instance there really wasn't an HR impact. There really wasn't a who works here difference. As a result, many, many IT teams were basically about, and I know, you know in full deference to the wonderful people that work in IT, a lot of them were more about keeping things running and, and keeping the, the building from you know burning down. And they'll report to the CFO, which is a bit of a telltale. Um, and And what you're seeing is that function become more and more empowered, more and more funded, Obviously, cybersecurity has a lot to do with that. The number of of uh, construction companies that have been hit with ransomware is is sucks. <laughs> to be yeah. honest, it's exactly the wrong industry, right? Because if, if I freeze everybody's ability to look at a drawing, what do you, what do you do? You know, like of the industries out there, it is one of the most susceptible. Excuse me to anyone listening, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> We're all. But my point is. So that has resulted in lots and lots of companies doing things like engaging with, I had a great conversation with Ignite on a podcast and what they'll do is they'll allow you to roll back a day, which is the best, honestly, the best way to deal with, with uh, ransomware. There's a bunch of solutions out there that allow you to do that. My point is the, the risk associated with that, you know, that, If there's anything construction executives are sensitive to, it's risk. So they're funding solutions to that and they're growing. So data starts to really be powerful for a contractor when they own it. Not when it's part of someone else's system, but when it's in their system, or that is married to their system to make a solution, and then they you know they borrow it, whatever. So you know I saw a great presentation from, I believe it was McCarthy, and I, it was McCarthy, at a, a conference earlier this year. They talked about building a data lake. They talked about a data warehouse. They clearly knew the difference between them the two, which is a good start. But they were way past a good start. They built a real data strategy. Along with that, how you know how they take data in, how they manage it, how they let it out, who they let it out to, they'd really started to think it through. They'd staffed it appropriately with pretty senior people. I believe it was an EVP who was presenting, as well as a director that worked with them. So to answer your question, I think um, it, it's the technology is a it's more like cloud technology as opposed to something sexy like a new new version of AI. AWS, all the cloud providers have these incredible things that you can, you can access, you can build really cheaply. Um, and they'll give you all the help you need to figure it out. I think you're seeing more and more of that. And I think you're gonna see that happen quickly. You're gonna hear the word data lake a lot. You're gonna hear the word data warehouse a lot um, over the next couple of years, because everyone's gonna be building them and then creating the systems that allow people to, to work with them. Because the whole point of all that is it's not hived off in a tower somewhere. But you manage the ability for other people in the organization to do stuff with that data.
0: really good. I, I have two follow-up questions on that. The first is, do you th- this all sounds really good and in um it, with larger companies I work with, I can see how this would be an initiative they take on. I can see a lot of people that I work with saying, "Listen, you just said our margins are one to three percent. We how do we take this on and continue to run the business? And how do we, how do we do it in a cost-efficient way? Is that even possible?
1: Yeah, it is. And I think this is one of those times when you cannot look at it as an expense. Of course, there's expense up front. But it, it, the, the ROI of understanding your business and understanding, like, again, if, imagine if you, if you did what we're talking about, right, which is, which is take the data that's coming out of your PM systems and things you already have, right, and manage them better. Now, the first step is to pull in the cons- customer success team from whoever that is, whether and people do this all the time, by the way, from Procore or whoever, and say, I want more out of my data. So sit with me until we figure it out. You, you don't have to pay a dime for that. So that's the first step, is to say the stuff that we already have, the, the software company we buy it from, it, whether it's them, CMIC, all of them have people that will get on the phone or come to, it depends on how big you are, so I don't get to spend anything to get better at this. It's about being okay and, and like being uncomfortable for a minute with stuff, with concepts that are, function a little different from how you're used to. Most people are not making, I mean, in, in finance, they're making just data-driven decisions all the time. I find that, that a, a good place to start is thinking about all the data you have to collect anyway with safety and say, what if we did that about operations? And what if we did that about how the field works? What if we did that with our supply chain? So you're already doing some of this because you have to, either because it lowers your insurance premiums or it's regulated or whatever. So between finance and safety, there's plenty of of data-driven decisions happening anyway. But now the question is, do the tools that we're buying already, can I get someone to to help me to do that with other things that are going to drive margins, lower risk, allow us to have less inventory lying around? I mean, just better use of cash is already... A meaningful way to save money and and have whatever that effort is pay for itself.
0: Okay, so I'm a smaller construction company and I track some safety data, but it's typically lagging in, lagging indicator information. I do some leading indicator. It's on a project basis. I have um, I have a Oracle for my I have Oracle for my accounting software, very separate than my safety data, and I have nothing else as far as data capture and data analysts. What is the where what tell me tell me two things I can do today that's going to help me understand how I can start to integrate data into my operation and where I should start to look to learn more about it.
1: Well, so presumably there is some project management system going on. Presumably. Could be
0: Primavera. Yeah, there's probably some but also once again very different very separate from Oracle, separate from your safety data. Probably using Primavera.
1: Yeah, yeah, Primavera is is, you know, they're not They're getting better but they weren't wonderful at at data exports but even so if you call up oracle and say i want better data out of this i mean i won't want to speak for them and and create a new call center for them but i'll bet you you're going to get someone saying absolutely you may get upsold but you can always tell them fine we'll do that next year but for now help me here so again go go to the, the companies that are selling you this because they want you to do that they want you to use the data better because it makes you stickier as a customer and again, down the road, if you grow, you may want to build more. They've just uh, Oracle just launched their I want to say it's construction intelligence cloud or something, I'm, I'm butchering it, but they have, a, they have a layer of analytics that they've launched on top of a P6 and Primavera that, yeah. that they, you may or may not want to use. But the point is, if you're using the current data better, you're a better customer down the road. You're more likely to buy as you grow. So yeah. that would be what I would say. That would be number one. Number two, if, if you don't have a PM system because you're doing things in Excel or, or some other way, um, that's a tougher one because you have the data, but someone's going to have to come and help you. And this doesn't have to be very expensive, but someone's going to have to come and help you to do stuff with that data. You don't need a whole data lake. It's nothing wrong with that. By the way, a data lake is very cheap as a thing. It's it's when you get enormous and the people to manage it that, that you start to see some expense. But the reason people do it is you're getting an Amazon S3 bucket for Five bucks a month until you put a lot in it you know what i mean so it's it's not it's not about that it's it's more about changing changing the process of how decisions are made are you saying let's look at the data before we say well i did a job a year ago and this looks just like it it doesn't mean that that intuition isn't valuable but now you have an additional source of information and the reality is just out of the box excel does some amazing stuff but you you gotta spend a little bit of time getting someone who knows how to use it to show you how to get more out of it.
0: Yeah. And, um, I think, I think if I could pull a, pull a big takeaway out of that, it's find a trusted partner. I know a lot of people are probably listening to this thing. I don't have time to do this. Um, but your, the industry, your business is changing around you. And this is something that you want to find a good partner now and figure out someone that can help you navigate this. If you don't already have those relationships with technology vendors.
1: So so an example of what you just said is um, L.S. Black had to learn about FedRAMP because they're doing a lot of federal projects. Mm-hmm. They had this great guy, Peyton Kringley, and I think he was like a first year in. Like he was really, really new. So as a result, I don't want to speak for his salary, but let's assume it wasn't 500 grand. So the expense that L.S. Black really put into this. And they said, you're a smart guy. You, you're straight out of school. He went through a CS degree. I think they had him in the field for a year or something. But he was a relatively inexpensive resource. And they said, go after this. So he went and did it. So as a company, and he was, I don't know if it was full-time or part, I never asked him really. But the point is the expense to the company wasn't weird. It was, they didn't have to bring in somebody from Silicon Valley who barely spoke the same language. It was someone who was from their company. And I see this over and over again is it's usually someone a little bit lower, you know, a little bit newer, who they say, go after this, go learn about it and bring it back to us and, and help us to understand, or you're, or you're, like, fired. You know what I mean? Like, like they, you already, it's not, they're not threatening anybody, but it's it's from within the existing organization. It's a pair of hands that understand how the operation works and the, 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 the sorts of risks that people are going to be interested in. So yeah. that's, uh, you know, you, you, there's always a couple of project engineers that you can get some of their time and say go go figure this out.
0: I think there's some engineering managers that are going to argue with you on that. Exactly one, but... right. Exactly right. <laughs> we have 110% absorption. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh different di- uh, conversation but, for a different time. Um but I I agree I agree with what you're saying and you know uh I I've seen that play out too, especially when you find someone good, but that that brings me to the second part of that question. It's around the talent piece. So, you know, you had, you had um, hinted to the point that, you know, there's, there's going to be a talent gap in construction for a long time. I hear a lot of the same stuff around developers. Um, so how difficult do you think it's going to be for all of a sudden construction companies now need to hire developers? They need someone who knows how to do AWS cloud. Um, how difficult do you think that's going to be? And how do you think um, companies can convince someone that knows how to do that to come on their team?
1: So there's two questions there. And someone who can, a cloud architect and a cloud manager, you can train somebody to do. Okay. It, it's a shallower skill set. Um, it doesn't mean it's not incredibly valuable. And it doesn't mean there aren't architects who are geniuses that have done it for 20 years. But to get someone to navigate all that stuff, you can get somebody that works for you to go take courses with AWS. They do it all the time so i think you can you know you can you can gain an, an internal competence um, by encouraging people or compensating them to go learn this the developer side of it isn't as hard as it sounds lots of developers don't want to go work for a startup and don't want to deal with with the you know the facebook's and all that stuff there's lots of you know folks in their 40s and 50s or in their 20s who love the idea of a stable company with an office they can go to or it, maybe it's not an office but it's a stable place that that you know what they're being asked for, is achievable, and you know what I mean. Like
0: yeah, it's an easier to ask.
1: It, it's not not everybody wants to go and burn a hundred hours a week, uh, you know, making stuff. A lot of people became an engineer because they like to build things, but they don't necessarily want to live that lifestyle. Most people don't, to be honest. So I think finding a a a developer is not going to be as hard as it might sound. Point one and point two because of the nature of what construction companies are gonna build, which is basically corporate development. Um, you can often hire a small internal team and offshore a lot of what you're doing. Obviously, if you're FedRAMP, it's a little harder to do. But what most companies, I mean, the reason India has an IT sector, other than the, the talent of the people that are there, is in the in the 80s into the 90s, lots and lots of stuff needed to get digitized. So the the, the first real wave of digital transformation all this paper, all this stuff had to get digitized, and they shipped it all over to India because the, they needed volume of, of of man hours. And I think you'll find some of that. Maybe it's not India; it could be, you know, Eastern Europe. It could be who knows? it Could be Timbuktu now because people can work from anywhere. So I think that that um I think that's gonna. It's not going to be as hard as people think. Um, it's not going to be easy, but hiring anyone's, you know, effort.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But I, but 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 to answer just just to make sure I really answer that. There's nothing inherently unattractive about a a, a construction company. Nothing. If anything, the offices are usually cooler. <laughs> Depends on which one I you like go it. to, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna leave that one alone. But I I, I agree <laughs> and understand what you're saying. I've been to some nice ones and I've been uh some nuts. I've up. been to yeah, I've been to some ones that I mean they they legitimately haven't updated this place since 1980 something, uh, same furniture and all. But that's I I mean being in construction I I don't mind that it gives it some character and you can usually see some pretty cool stuff. Um, so this was really good. I want to transition real quick into. Um, what do you think this means for buyer behavior in this space. So um, you see a lot of uh, the way construction companies reach new clients is um, the kind of ground and pound method where it's you hire a business development team or a business development person, and then you go out and form new relationships. And that is how you that's how you generate revenue. That's what you rely on. Uh, I'm curious if you're hearing companies that are being more innovative on that end, um, and you being a marketer, I'm, I'm curious what you think of that outreach strategy.
1: Yeah, I think that what what is definitely happening is more and more companies are looking at whatever data they can to better target, mm-hmm. decide what to invest in. Um, companies are also starting to say, oh, my God, I've recreated the same deck from scratch 50 times. Why are we doing this? So starting to get a little bit more digital asset management focused so that we have, you know, you have things you can pick up and quickly have quickly tell a story before you go spend, you know, what you need to spend. So I think that, that d- data here, again, is is starting to make a difference. Uh, and that, that, you know, every new business sucks for everyone. You know, I used to work at ad agencies in the amount, obviously, and the amount of money and effort we would put, put into pitches is incredible. You'd create whole campaigns. I mean, ha- half the time, the value of the pitch was what you got paid for later. It was I'm overstating it, but not by a lot. So mm-hmm. I think that, and they had no data. Oh, my God, it was all personal, you know, relationships. Um there's a lot less there. What I think is also happening is the um the buyers are starting to look at factors they might might not have before. not everybody. There's a lot of buyers out there, and by that, I mean owners who just want an annuity. They don't really care about you know, sustainability or any of that stuff. They want to build a box they can charge for or a box they can flip. But there are enough companies though that, that really do care about sustainability and really do care about green credentials, that it started, it's a factor. It, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. But it's, an, it's another area where a contractor can have a strategy. Because one of the problems with a, an industry like construction, again, advertising was the same thing, where you have a lot of people doing the same thing. So a super can go from one to another and more or less know what they need to know. Um, is it's hard to argue why you should hire us, not them. It comes down, it it winds up eroding. I mean, one of the reasons for low margins is competition, right? So anything you can do to create a differentiator and I'm not, I'm not, everybody knows this, but that's one of the ways that you can think about it is by using data to, um, to go after companies that look more like you or like what you want to go after, um, and using it to, to, to differentiate how you operate and and represent how you operate.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, if I could add to that a little bit too, uh, we focus a lot on removing friction, where um, the knowledge was typically a, a guarded thing, and even construction companies they wanted to be very protective of what they released, what they communicated about, and we we have the uh, perspective that hey, customers are going to find this information out anyways. They have to figure this stuff out in new technologies and new areas. So why don't you be the objective person that provides that information? Even if it's not as flattering to your business, if you're actually helping your potential customers, then they're more likely to trust you and want to work with you in the future. So we focus a lot on that component as well.
1: Yeah, I think that one, one of the outcomes of not being a heavily differentiation-based industry is people aren't sure what they should keep secret. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know what's making you special, so it's like, all right, hang on, hang on to all of it. Whereas, you know, m- most of what makes a, c- a construction company run that is, that is even that is even com- kind of competitively relevant, no one could copy anyway. It's yep. about how you do things and who's there and and relationships and all that. So you can tell everybody everything pretty much. I mean, no one's going to change their mind because of what I say. But the reality is, it's it's the who, not the how. That makes you special until you make the house special and that's what technology and data can do
0: well said well said all right you uh, we're running close on time here I, I could talk to you for probably another hour or so but i know uh, you have to get going today um and so we'll save some for the next episode uh we like to, to we like to end each episode with uh, our successful uh, participants best routine or habit uh, we got a, y- a lot of young professionals and uh, a lot of people that just care about routines and habits like myself. So what would you say your most impactful routine or habit is?
1: Getting up really early. What time? I'm, I'm four o'clock, four or five. Um, you know, and, and it, that the implication is I, I, I just don't watch TV at night. You know, I, I w- might watch one thing. I have, a, I have a tendency of watching police procedurals because there's a beginning, middle and end. And, like, right now I'm watching uh, Criminal Minds, which is – every episode is the same. And, and, they, and like, the, the last victim went, s- survives kind of thing. But so what? It's a nice mental cl- cleanser that gets you to bed. So, yeah, I, 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 getting up early is huge because it allows you to go into the day calm and confident um, instead of, oh, God, I'm late and, oh, my God, I'm late. So.
0: What, uh, do you wake up at the same time, seven days a week? How much do you let yourself sleep in Saturday and Sunday?
1: It, I get up naturally a, about five thirty-six, like, yeah. like you get into that rhythm. And so I don't, I don't force it, but you know, like the, the, the clock goes off anyway. And I just hit snooze less.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's a good, that's a really good one. I'm, I'm an early riser myself. Uh, I, I, I struggle with the at night piece. That's always what gets me right. But I found that if you just make yourself get up in the morning, that you'll eventually stop staying up later because you're going to pass out of sleep deprivation at some point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's right.
0: All right, Hugh. uh, uh, Thank you again. I I would encourage everyone to please uh, check out Hugh's podcast, Constructed Futures. It's really good. We'll put it in the show notes, also share it in the links to our podcast episode. Uh, Also encourage everyone to connect with Hugh on LinkedIn. He posts some good content, some good things on the technology side that's letting you know what's going on in our industry. And uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll see everyone next week. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Matt.